Glenn was Pastor Wallace many, many years ago, for those that uh, might not know who they are, and uh, we're just thankful that they're uh, with us this morning. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the the book of John, uh, chapter 6. We've been doing a a series this fall, and some of it's been just kind of introduction. I'm new here. I want to share some things that... um, that I love about certain passages in Scripture in order for y'all to get to know me better. So we did that before Labor Day. And, and now we've moved into this series in John that focuses on these conversations that Jesus has that are unique to John that we looked at for the past couple of weeks. Uh, but specifically, the I Am statements, which we begin this morning. And this particular I Am statement, especially the way that I'm treating it this morning, is kind of um, a gateway to the others. Um, this is about life. Uh, it's, it's about bread, which is sim- symbolic for life. And, but there's a component to the way that John writes this story, and of course the way that Jesus dealt with these people, that we've got to see and get in order to not just see and get the others. I don't like the way that that sounds, but for our posture to be ready to receive what Jesus will say to us and the rest of these I Am statements. And so I say that by way of introduction, not just to our text this morning, but also to um, this wonderful text in John, or or sorry, but to the series uh, as we look at the I Am statements for the rest of uh, the fall until we uh, run up to Advent. So with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Found in John chapter 6, verses 22 to 35, we're really taking the whole chapter here, but I'm going to focus on verses 22 to 35 this morning. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one, or is he, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would, as you promised, graciously give us your spirit, that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, and that you would soften our hearts, make it good soil, such as a seed goes out into that soil and produces a fruit, that your word would go out into our hearts and produce a fruit that we would leave here changed people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read some words for you here in a second, and my guess is, is that these words are going to be familiar to you, so I will give, it a, give that a, a test here. Two, wor- two roads diverge in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both, but being one traveler long, I stood and looked down one as far as I could as to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, for it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. Robert Frost, road less taken, getting some nods. Perhaps the the ending when he brings this home is, is what is equally as familiar. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverge in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the Thank you. Yes, there you go. Um, I, I do not need to uh, overstate this. Perhaps one of the most famous American poets, but also American poems, perhaps even on a worldly level, right? The Road Less Taken by Robert Frost. Its popularity sort of just demonstrated through y'all's participation, which I appreciate, um, cannot be overstated either. I, in an article about this particular poem, so some data came to, came, came to this, the surface here as to how popular Frost's poem is. That for the past 35 years alone, and this poem was written, I think, in 1915, so we're well over 100 years. Um, the past 35 years alone, uh, language from Frost's poem has appeared in nearly 2,000 news stories worldwide, which, which yields a rate of more than once a week. How would you like to write something that got that kind of play throughout history? In addition, The Road Not Taken appears as a title or subtitle or chapter heading in more than 400 books by authors um, other than Frost on subjects ranging from political theory, the article says, to impending zombie apocalypse. At least one of these was a massive international bestseller. There's probably many that have either know this book or read this book by M. Scott Peck titled The Road Less Traveled, A New Psychology of Love, Traditional Values, and Spiritual Growth. It's published in 1978, and it only sold a mere 7 million copies. According to Google now, The Road Less Taken is, is way more, or sorry, is searched four times more um, than any, anything that would come into second place uh, in that genre. By comparison, and this actually, this is what spoke to me, this is even greater than the margin by which the term college football beats archery or water polo, as far as Google searches are concerned. Its volume is double that of Bob Dylan and Like a Rolling Stone, or F. Scott Fitzgerald and The Great Gatsby. It plays a unique role, not simply in American culture today, but of course, worldly culture as well. Now, wherever your love for Robert Frost is, I, I, I hope this doesn't ruin it for you or not, but this is, where, this is why I bring this up. In this article, it's actually a review in a book by 
David Orr, his own review of his own book, titled The Road Not Taken, Finding America in the poem Everyone Loves and Almost Everyone Gets Wrong. And he goes on to talk about the interesting play of of this wonderful poem and how it has impacted our culture, yet we all missed it. And and, and in missing this poem, we also miss Robert Frost as well, and he goes into a deeper dive in his book discussing Robert Frost. His point uh, with his poem is that Robert is not talking about sort of this rogue individualism, which is what has kind of taken how we've read this into that, that poem, or this sort of um, champion self-reliance the, uh, of the Western spirit. That's not what Frost was talking about. What he argues is that what Frost meant was to talk about was writing a poem that reflected upon life's decisions and the struggle that that was. And that taking these two roads, somehow uh, we have to make decisions in life, and then, then what's almost just as difficult is we have to look back and be at peace with those decisions. And I find that interesting because that is, a, that is very far away from the way that I learned this poem. I had to memorize this poem in eighth grade. Still got it, thanks to Miss Marler. Um, but my culture, right, my cultural lens caused me, I would say, to interpret this the way that Many of us perhaps in here have interpreted that, that this is about me making a decision, and friends, that is what has made all the difference. And so my question this morning as we come into this chapter 6 of John, as we enter this new series, is is it possible for us to be doing the same thing as we come into contact with the Bible, to take our cultural lens and to put it upon the text itself. Because there's a lot of parallels here between David Orr and his, hey, you've missed it, (laughs) as it pertains to the most famous poem in American history, with what we see happening here in Scripture as well. Because when we look at this text, as we'll see, those following Jesus, those coming after Jesus, they miss it. They miss the signs. And more importantly, they miss what the signs pointed to, which was Jesus. And the reason that they miss this is because they are looking at this through their own cultural lens of what manna is supposed to be symbolic of, of what bread is supposed to be symbolic of, and what it's supposed to do. And especially as a Jew in this day, what they had anticipated uh, being the sign of the next person, of of the Messiah that, that, that God promised to send. Instead, they miss it. But I would suggest that we, we run into the same situation here, that just like Frost, where we import our own cultural sort of understanding about things onto a text, we do the same here with John, and perhaps even all of Scripture, and the fear is is here that we would miss it as well. Miss Jesus' words to us, not just that he is the bread of life, but actually why that bread is life itself. That we need this. But in missing it, reading into our own self-reliance, the lens of our own self-reliance, our own sort of rogue individualism, we come in contact with a text like this, and we're not really sure what to do with it. Why do I need bread? Right? Isn't it I who made the decisions in my life, and friends, that has made all the difference? Well, let's look at this text here, because what I would suggest is that what Jesus is showing us 
as we come into contact with this first I am statement, is that for us to not just receive this bread, but to understand where he, what he is saying in all the other I am statements is for us to disarm, as it were, and to let down our own cultural individualism, our rogue sense of, of, of spirit, which I love and appreciate, don't get me wrong, but that the Bible requires us to lay down that we may see our need and dependence upon God. So let's look at that and see that in this text. And I have two points this morning by sort of way of introduction into these I am statements, um, but also into this text as well. And the first is, I just want to look at why bread. And, and that'll, that'll serve both for this text, but also a little bit of an overview for the I am statements. But why bread? Why does Jesus say that he's the bread of life? And then second, what the crowds missed. So let's take that first one, why bread? And, and this is going to have two subpoints for you. So for those that love structure, we've got two subpoints this morning. I know. I went over and above. I got installed, and now I'm just ready to go, okay? So uh, the first subpoint is the significance of bread. And bread is something that I'm assuming at this point we've all heard of. We all know about it, right? Uh, we, we, we love bread. And uh, as we, we come into this passage, though, um, Bread ha- held a, a particular significance to Jesus' audience that it might not hold for us today. But bread in this day was symbolic for life. If you, if you had bread, you had what you needed for this day, which meant you had life. It wasn't the promise of bread tomorrow. It was, it was if you had it today, this is all that you needed. And so bread carried this, this symbolic significance um, for, for prosperity, even, but for life in general. And so today, as we think about this, we can imagine how this could be perhaps lost on us. Not because we don't like bread anymore. (laughs) We love bread. Uh, It's because there's so much of it. Our problem isn't where are we going to find bread today? Our our, our issue is where are we going to go get it and, and how many different flavors and capacities that we can go find it. Nobody this, here this morning is going to walk into a restaurant or into someone's home and just, just jump up and down because they are so excited that they have bread here, right? The chances are you're going to go home and probably throw some away because it's moldy because you have too much of it, or you're going to go out to a restaurant and they're just going to start like putting this stuff in bags and boxes and telling you to go home with it, right? The point is, is that bread is, it's too much, we're too familiar with it. There's too much of it in that sense. And because of this, um, we miss the significance of bread uh, as Jesus' listeners would, would hear it this morning. Okay? And it would do us well to enter into that a little bit and understand how bread has different meanings for us and weighed heavier for, G- for the people in Jesus' day than it, than it might for us simply because we are so blessed and I'm thankful for that. What Jesus does in this passage, though, is he takes what is symbolic for life, which is bread, and he connects it to himself. He says, what bread does in part, I do in full. So whatever is significant to you as bread would be in this day, perhaps you put that, you know, maybe it's your your cell phone. Can't go, you know, what is it? People can't go two and a half minutes separated from their cell phone today. So if that works for you, great. Jesus takes that and he connects it to himself. He says, I am life for you. 
I am life for you. This is what he's doing in this passage where bread is symbolic for life here. I am life. I am the bread of life for all eternity. And to put a finer point on it, Jesus is not simply saying that I can make you full. Right? He's not simply saying um, I can give you food as he does to these people in this text and in the, in the story prior to this where he feeds 5,000. Rather, Jesus is making a much more distinct claim. He is saying, I am what makes you full. I am what gives you life for all who believe. And this is the significance of bread in this day, but it's the significance of, of the passage as Jesus connects himself to it. And in order for us to sort of you know, enter into that space and feel the weight of these words, we need to remember both the significance of bread in this day, but also um, how those would be hearing it in that day versus how we might hear it, okay? And once we do this, we can kind of move forward a little bit and get to that next sub-point, next sub-point which is how did Jews hear this? How did Jews hear this in this day? Because it's actually out of that understanding of bread that we understand Jesus even more. In this chapter, and as we heard read earlier, Jesus has drawn a large crowd. This happens right before the text that I read, where he feeds 5,000 people, plus actually. And you, you might be familiar with that story. Um, these folks have followed him almost haphazardly because they saw signs and they saw miracles that he was doing, and they followed him far away from their homes, and it's getting late, and, and, and this is, there's a sense of desperation in the other accounts of the story. Where are they going to go to find food? And so the disciples are having this powwow with Jesus, and they're saying, listen, it's time, it's time to send them to the cities because they, they've got to get food or else, you know, we don't know what would happen. Sometimes people went three or four days without eating. And so Jesus turns to them and he says, no, you give them something to eat. And, and then they find this boy who I just feel compassion for. Somehow he's got five loaves and, and two fish. He was the guy who was prepared right? And you're, you, that's somebody out here too, you're right. You know, I, I, I checked all the boxes. I'm the one that got my bread and my food to go on this height to find Jesus, and now all of a sudden it's being confiscated, and, and you know, that, that would happen to me. Um, so they go and they take it, and Jesus then blesses it and begins to multiply that, as, as we know, and feeds a multitude of people. And then after this, Jesus withdraws, but the people come looking for him, and they find him across the sea in Capernaum. And that's where our text really picks up. And they, they ask Jesus, when did you come here? <laughs> to which Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I might offer like, oh, well, you know, I came here by a boat. <laughs> and, and much like we, we read in John, he cuts right to the heart of it all. This is why you're seeking me. And he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God has, God the Father has set his seal. In other words, Jesus is saying, you are coming to me because of what I made your bellies full. I supplied that need for you. I, I, I made your troubling circumstance better. All you can think about is the physical aspect of how I supplied your needs. Don't do that. He's saying there's a greater need that you have. And it's a spiritual need. You need food that endures to eternal life. But like most of the discourses, and you're probably recognizing this at this point, most of the discourses in John, what happens with the people that Jesus is talking to, it just goes right over their head. They miss it. 
And of course, that's who we are. If we're looking for somebody to identify with in the story, we're, we're, we're those people. We miss it. But they miss it, and they don't understand what Jesus is saying, and so they ask more questions, and then they demand another sign. And this is where their cultural lens comes into play. They begin talking about their ancestors who God rescued from Egypt and fed them manna from the sky, how God gave them bread from heaven to eat, right? This is Israel's understanding of what they're to be looking for, more bread. But Jesus, in in this account we even notice in verse 32, he actually corrects them on their understanding of this. He says, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. And this is the crucial point. Who was it? It was the Father. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And the tense there is actually important. He knows what Jesus does there. He talks about the past and he comes to the present. Like, do you see it yet? Jesus goes on to explain to them what happened in the wilderness was not the bread from heaven that you speak of. It was real bread that was only able to sustain them for a day. In fact, that bread got moldy, as he continues to say, and had to be thrown away. What's important, though, is what that manna in the wilderness pointed to. What's important is what that miracle that you experienced the other day of the feeding of 5,000, what it pointed to, where it came from. That one day God would truly send the real bread from heaven, the kind that doesn't mold, that doesn't have to be thrown away, the kind that fills us and gives us life forever. And so the crowds ask, sir, give us this bread. Where can we find this bread? We want the real bread from heaven, much like the woman at the well last week. Give me this water so I don't have to come back here anymore. To which Jesus says, verse 35, I am that bread. I am that bread. I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is, this is the first point. And in it, we see both the significance of bread on, on two different levels, the cultural understanding of bread that day, but also in a deeper sense, what, what, what Jews would be anticipating. What's their lens for this? As they re- fall back to the story of manna in the wilderness. But this is the significance of it. And also, it's a, you know, just a major part of understanding as we dig deeper into the Old Testament uh, of who Jesus is. And, and, and by, before we leave this first point, this is one thing I want to make or highlight as it pertains to the I am statements, is that many of them, uh, Jesus uh, says, says them, but many of them are connected to the Old Testament, much like this one. And that is, Jesus intentionally connects uh, who he is and what he is doing and what the Father is doing uh, with the Old Testament. And one of the, the points of this is to see Jesus in the New Testament as not separate from Yahweh in the Old Testament. That is, this isn't some new story here. This is the same story. And this isn't some new God. This is the same God. They are one and the same. Right? As John wrote in his prologue, uh, John 1 here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and and dwelt among us. One God, one story, and this is part of the, the purpose for Jesus to connect himself to the Old Testament, especially in this I am statement. We'll see it in others. But to say it more pointedly, it's not that the Old Testament was plan A and then God, you know, devised a plan and and came up with plan B, which was Jesus and his ministry. No, it's all plan A. It's all plan A. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all the things that God was doing in the Old Testament 
promised and pointed the way to him. But second, I want to go a little further with this this morning, and specifically this wilderness generation and this Old Testament significance. Because if we're familiar or not with that story, this is in Exodus 15 and, and, and Numbers, or yeah, Numbers 11, Exodus 14 and Numbers 11. This is right after Israel has been freed from Egypt, and they are um, freed by God uh, from being slaves and now are brought into the wilderness by him. And they're there for 40 years, and there's a lot going on in those 40 years. And to summarize it, it's God trying to get, what, Egypt out of them and to get him in in themselves. The covenantal promise, I will be your God, you'll be my people. But they have been slaves for over 400 years. So he takes them out there, and part of that is so that they would learn to depend on them. And the reason why manna is so important is because it's not like you had options in this wilderness, Right? There wasn't this sort of buffet of options, and then this, this manna would kind of come next and be, be a, a you know, subsidiary of that. Like, manna was it, which meant that, and the reason God did this was that as they were out there in the wilderness, self-reliance was never going to work for them. They had to trust that God would provide and this is how they provided. This, is, this was God's means for not just getting Egypt out of them, as it were, for them learning to trust and depend on him. This is the way that he was communicating that I am your source of life. It must come from me. And I labor here to say this because this is the real burden of this passage. And it, I, I don't know how to winsomely say or get us to understand that the reason we look at this passage and we kind of maybe perhaps roll our eyes because he's talking about bread, something that we're very familiar with, the burden of the passage is to get us to see our true need for this bread. To get us to see that this is our situation, our spiritual situation as it were, right? Slaves in Egypt, now freed as God's people, who aren't to go about ourselves, right, thinking that now we are now ready to, to, to make our choices and decide our own fate. We are people now who know of our need and thus our dependence upon God himself. And the burden here is that if we don't see that need, if we don't see that, true de- that need for dependence upon Jesus, then the statement, I am the bread of life, we'll miss it. We'll miss it. And that's exactly what happens here in this story. And this gets to my second point and where we're going to leave it for this morning. What the crowds miss. And what they missed was what this sign pointed to, which was Jesus. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life that has come down from heaven, what Israel should be hearing is God is doing it again. He's doing it again, but in a much more complete and final way. God is sending life to all who believe, and through that belief, they take me into themselves by my Spirit, where where I will sustain them and give them life like bread. And this is something that God does to us. But what's easy to do is to get caught up with the signs. And this is where our cultural lens comes into place, right? We get caught up with the signs. We're looking for something specific, manna falling from the sky, and we miss their true purpose, 
uh, which is what the signs actually pointed to. I know many of you are familiar with this type of language in the Bible where we talk about there's the sign in the Old Testament and then it's what it's, what, there's what the signs signified, its purpose. And this is what Jesus is going to be doing, connecting himself to these signs. It's as if you're driving down the road and you come upon a sign that reads, Steep Cliff Ahead. Okay? That sign is not the reality, is it? That is, if you keep driving so much that you go off the cliff, you would, you would say you missed the sign. And rightfully so. Hopefully that doesn't happen as you go home this morning or this afternoon. When Jesus tells them in verse 35 that I'm the bread, I'm the bread of life, these people have missed the sign. That is, they miss what's the, what the sign's purpose is, its significance, what it pointed to, um, and what it points to is him. Th- this is what you need. Just like manna in the wilderness, just like you needed this perhaps last night when I, I fed the multitudes. But yet you're looking for something Specific. You're looking for this reenactment of what happened in the wilderness where, where, where with Moses, manna fell from the sky. And because of that, you're missing what the sign was intended to point to. Jesus says seven times then after this, and it's record, you know, this is in verse 34 of 58, he labors with them as he tries to get them to understand what it is that they're missing. Seven times he uses the phrase, come down. And you start to see that, right, they're looking for, they would ask Jesus, say, Jesus, please perform, you know, show us that you are one like Moses. Right? We, we get that you might be a prophet. We, we, we experienced to some, some level the miracle that you performed the other day. Show us another sign. And what they really want is they, they want to see the man that actually come down from the sky. And so seven times Jesus tells them, I am the one who has come down, right? The Father has, has sent me. I, I've come from the Father. I have come down. And they just flat out missed it. And some of it is, as we see in verse 42, they just can't believe that Jesus is God's gift of eternal life for them because, well, isn't that Joseph and Mary's son? Who we know? They are willing to believe that he is a prophet, as we said, and perhaps more, that if Jesus will just do another sign, just like Moses bringing manna from the sky, then we will believe. But as Jesus says in verse 36, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. In other words, you are looking at the real manna from the heavens that has come down and you can't see it because your cultural lens has you looking for something else. Now here's the confusing part, all right? And I apologize if you're like, oh, now we're getting to the confusing part. (laughs) Here's the confusing part. Verses 37 to 51. Jesus moves away from the topic of bread, and he goes to eternal life, and he goes into predestination and election. And before, you know, we were talking about something simple, something familiar, bread, and its significance for life. And how Jesus connected it to himself, saying, I am that bread, I am the bread of life. But now, all of a sudden, we are talking about how anyone comes to God in the first place. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me because the Father gave them to me, this is the grammar, I will never cast out. 
For I have come down, there it is again, from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You ever have one of those friends who you can be in the middle of a conversation and you're just talking about sports news and the, and the weather, right? Something very simple, basic, and all of a sudden they just have this spiritual gift almost to take that to a level 10 conversation, very serious. Somehow we went from how wonderful the weather was to some you know, deep introspective aspect of life. How did we get there? Right? We call that a level 10. I call it a level 10. Uh, that's what Jesus has just, just done here all of a sudden. I want you to notice the shift here, because it's important. He's gone from talking about bread, what seemed to be very simple, and now he's gone into this, are we all, we are all, we're all of a sudden talking about election, predestination, we're talking about what he's come to do, the, his will, and his will is just the will of the Father. Um, and then he throws in resurrection. Do, do you, right? Are you with me on this? What is he doing? Why is he saying this? Better yet, why does he go here? And we've, we've, got, we've, got to, we've got to get this. One, the crowds are missing him, and the only way they will see their need is if they see how utterly dire their situation truly is. You see that? The dire situation of the wilderness Right. The dire situation of needing food the, night, the day before for bread, that is a sign in and of itself. And Jesus goes here because he, he, he knows that until they see their true spiritual situation, they're going to miss it. They're going to miss it. Because bread of life, friends, is not bread of life until you see your need, until you see your dire situation. In May of this year, I read an article about this ultramarathon in China, in Gansu, China, the Yellow River Stone Forest. And this was an ultramarathon that, uh, like any other ultramarathon, the best in the world had signed up for it. And it's about 100 or 150 miles of running in just horrible conditions. But unfortunately, on this day in May, 21 people were killed in the middle of the race. And it wasn't those who just signed up because maybe they want to give it a shot and they hadn't really practiced. It, it picked off the weather and, and all the conditions, the best in the world, and, and those who, everybody who had expected to win. And in this article, we read about this, and, and it's telling about the conditions, and it's telling about just the, the, the tragedy of this. And it interviews this one runner who made it out, and his call sign uh, is the wanderer of all things. And he survived, and he's talking about this, and he's, he's talking about how this particular, this is past the third checkpoint, this particular section as you're running, um, it gets into higher elevations, and there's no checkpoint here for another 20 or 16 miles, meaning there's, there's no, no help, there's, there's nobody to come rescue you here if something happens. You have to make it through this. And what happened that day was, uh, given the elevation and everything, the, the wet, a storm came in and the weather changed dramatically. It went from like 60 degrees to below freezing. Hail, rain, and, and people just kept going and got hypothermia and were not able to make it out. 
So he's talking about this, and he's talking about running. And as he's running into this section, and he's heading into what he doesn't know yet is his death, he sees somebody pass him. And the only thing he can think of, and he says this in the article, he says, the only thing I I can think of is, at the time, I thought, how could you give up like that? How could you give up like that? You know, and he's thinking, not just the race, but the prize money. You just, you get money for finishing. Not just getting first, second, third place. How could you give up like that? Well, as it turned out, he ended up having to turn around too. Barely making it to this cave where uh, some shepherd who was in the area was caring for people in a cave with 12 other people. Later, that would fill up to 50. He had no idea what was going on on that track that day. It was only afterwards that he found out that if he had kept going ahead, he would probably be number 22, as by the time he got to that cave, his extremities were all numb, his skin was blue, and he could barely stand up. And he says this, he says, as he, as he reflects on his desire to run and, and thinking, you know, as that runner passed him, how could he uh, give up like this? He thinks, he says to himself, Every time I think of that, I want to smack myself. Which you'd say, yeah, you would give up your life just for your pride to keep going and those kinds of things. But here's why I I read this to you, because it's this guy, the wanderer, whatever you want, I don't know what his real name is, he's only able to say that. He's only able to say that. I want to smack myself, right? Well, how could I think? He's only able to say that after he found out how tragic the race was. In other words, how dire his situation was. Bread of life is not bread of life until we see how dire our situation is. And until these folks with Jesus see that, Jesus will just be the son of Joseph and Mary. So what about us? And this is where I'm landing this plane. All right? It's easy to read a text like this and to dive into a portion of it where people missed it and get on our high horse and think, boy, I'm glad I didn't miss it. Been catechized, go to Sunday school, I did not miss it. Thanks be to God. Let's close in prayer. It would be easy for us to do that and to think to ourselves, isn't that what has made all the difference? But the burden of this text, friends, is to show us that we all have missed it. You've missed it. You missed it. You turned back. Which means our situation this morning is just as dire unless God, what, has mercy on us. As Paul will write in Ephesians, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, we all miss it. Therefore, for Jesus to have significance, and this is the point, significance for us this morning as bread did for them in their day and age, um, it requires us to see the direness of our situation and to own our own uh, condition, which begins with the words, I missed it, because bread, friends, is not bread until you see that but for the grace of God. Which then brings us to this table. I want you to look at this table. And for a moment, I want you to look at that bread and that wine, and I want you to say, I, want you to say, I missed it. I missed it. I, you missed it. I missed it. The, the guy you installed last Sunday, me, he, he, I missed it. He missed it. And, and somehow that qualifies me to lead you. That's the gospel though, right? Can you say you missed it this morning? Because if you can, there's a table here for you 
of Jesus' body, right? the cup of his blood that is symbolic of the new covenant where we share in his salvation story. It is here for you. Because what this table says is that though we missed it, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit before the foundations of the world looked at you and said, no, no. And friends, that, that is what has made all the difference. Among all the emotions surrounding God's election and calling, I want, I want us to see God's kindness as we come to the table here in just a minute. That he doesn't say to us in this text, he doesn't say to the crowds in this text, as we wrestle with our need for Jesus this morning and thus see why he really is life for us. He doesn't look at you and say, you know what, this is all determined. You don't have to do a thing. As a matter of fact, I'd just be great if you just went ahead and gone on with your life because God's already sort of done all this stuff. I don't want you to miss the kindness of God back in verse 28, 29, and this is what I'll leave us with. Where the crowd say, then, then, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that what you believe in him whom he sent. For those in this room, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, visiting, whatever. Part of John's message is that he is the evangelist. He wants you to believe. And so all of his texts, right, are geared towards that. Believe. But I would also say this to those who are Christians, right, who, who need refreshing glimpses of the gospel over and over and over again, that in God's kindness to a bunch of people who missed it, God says no. And he calls you then upon that grace to believe in him. Friends, would that be bread for us today? the kindness of God and Jesus Christ who would come and give his life for us, who would call us to himself, a bunch of people who missed it, and give us eternal life. That is the bread of life. We pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. There's so much more to be said, of course, but we pray that as we begin to look at these statements, your words to us, we pray that you would continue to show us our need for you. And by doing that, that you would show us grace and that we would actually see how amazing grace is because that's what grace does. It takes people who missed it, who wouldn't see it otherwise, and it makes them and gives them a seat at your table. It turns them uh, from orphans into sons and daughters of you. It turns them uh, from aliens to being heirs of a king and his kingdom. And that is only because of Jesus Christ. We say thank you. We pray that you continue to teach us that throughout the rest of the service. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.